Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. Today, I have a very special guest. Well, I feel like they're all very special guests, but today we're going to be chatting with Helen King, and Helen King is a social worker who works out of her home in the Lincoln Square area in Chicago. And Helen is somebody that I see for consultation and supervision. Not sure if non-professionals know this, but once a therapist gets their clinical license, they are no longer required to seek supervision. But I like to say that I see Helen so that I can check myself before I wreck myself. And Helen has been, like, I can't even tell you what a great asset she has been to me. Not only, you know, talking about client things and ethical issues with working, but also business stuff. Helen will tell you a little bit about her background uh, in business before she became a social worker. I started seeing her when it was just me and head heart therapy was was just Sarah Bueno. And she's been with me this entire way to growing the practice. And so she has just been a godsend to me. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Helen. I think we talked about some really interesting stuff and I think you'll dig it. So here's Helen King on the Healing Highway. Well, let's get down to it. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you today? Great, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling like in this moment, actually super embarrassed because I just had a phone call where it was this like super buttoned up conference call with this committee that I'm on and I was supposed to be leading it and I totally fucked shit up and I felt like an idiot. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm like trying to remind myself that was my first time. I don't do this all the time and no one's going to be like, well, that person sucks. No, so, they're not. And yeah. All I can tell you is I totally get it. And right. that I'm feeling a little apprehensive about this interview right now. Yeah. Because I've never done one of these before. So I'm excited and I'm a little nervous. Eee! So everyone be cool to Helen and not. Please. Yeah. Not like they can find you anyway. Right. So <laughs> That's no. Right. That's right. <laughs> even if everyone hates it, you'll never know. It's perfect. That's, That's right. <laughs> And what people think of me is none of my business. I love that saying. Yes. It's it's really important. That's so true. Well, why don't we then, you know, with that, go ahead and launch in and tell us who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. I've had a private practice for just about 20 years now. I work mainly with adults and the age limit for my adulting with people I really start now right after college working Mm. with people. Sometimes I work with people who are in college. I love that younger population. I do a lot of work with that buzzword codependency, which I haven't found one word that encapsulates a lot of what I do. I work with people who really have self-worth issues, who are people pleasers, who have an unhappiness that they cannot figure out why, because Mm. everything on the outside looks pretty good, but they're still not feeling good on the inside. And, and I really feel like part of the work I do is to help people make their insides and their outsides match. Mm. So that's a lovely way to say it. And that's not my saying. I heard that a long time ago. And I really took that in my own healing as something that I wanted to make a goal was to have my insides and my outsides match. I also work with neglect and abuse. I work with family of origin issues and addiction issues. So Mm -hmm. this is my passion. I'm very excited about the work. 
Yeah. And do you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, your business background? And I can talk about the work that you and I do together, too. Sure. I started out in business and I got my master's in business and I was working at a company called MCI, which is no longer in existence. Somebody bought MCI and ran it into the ground. They're now in jail. Seriously? Yes, seriously. It was a very interesting experience. But while I was working at MCI, I realized through my own personal work that what I really wanted to do was to help other people. And I had some experiences in my own healing that really prompted me to go back to school Hmm. and get my degree and go into social work. That's funny because I always assumed that you were always a therapist and that the MBA was the secondary thing. No, my father was in business. My mother was a social worker. So go figure, right? (laughs) I I, I touched both. Yeah, Um, I was really influenced by both of them. And in my business acumen, you would have thought I had the perfect life. Again, going Mm -hmm. back to that looking good. In the 80s, when I was in business, I had perfectly coiffed hair. Mm -hmm. Business people wore, women wore suits and bow ties. Oh, my gosh. I have pictures, but I won't let anybody (gasps) see them. (laughs) Oh, damn it. (laughs) They're very incriminating. It was a fantastic time in my life to learn more about how everything in my life was so good, except my personal life. Hmm. and accept how I was feeling. I was miserable. Mm. So it was a great teacher, great time for me. Was there a moment or is there a particular story that you can point to where you realized that you wanted to make the shift? I was doing some intense work with an experiential therapist and learned so much about, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to love myself. That was a foreign concept to me. Mm. I need to have boundaries. I need to learn how to say no. And I learned this with this therapist in a group setting. And Hmm. by watching the healing that was going on around me, not only my own healing, but other people's, I thought it was magical. I really thought it was magical. And it's it's not like it happened in a day or a week. It happened over a long period of time. Right. But that process is really what sparked my desire to get into this field. Was that on site? It was at on site, yes. <gasps> Yay! I just met with a gal from OnSite, and I think I'm going to have to force myself to go because every every single person I've talked to about it says it's a life-changing experience. It is a life-changing experience, and I was fortunate enough to not only do my personal work there, but I was a group leader there for many, many years. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic experience. I hope to someday be able to go back there just to work again. Yeah. Maybe they want to sponsor us. I'll have to talk to my... <laughs> There you go. That's funny, right? Yeah, it's great. So, well, I think self-love is kind of, I feel like the underlying current Mm -hmm. that encompasses all that you talked about, basically, you know, the work that you were doing with yourself, as well as now what you specialize in, really. And I think Mm -hmm. that speaks to, this is a big secret. If you're not a therapist, just FYI, we specialize in the shit we need to do our own work on. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So... Yeah, I don't know if there's anything you can you can share in particular about learning to develop self-love or self-worth that you feel might be helpful to other people. Um, I think one of the hardest lessons I had to learn is that I had to do it on my own, that it's an inside job, that it wasn't about mm-hmm. 
the money I made, the car I drove, the job I had, the clothes I wore, the friends, the travel. It was a much more internal journey than that. And that that journey to self-love, it starts and ends with me. And it starts and ends with my boundaries and my own behaviors and my thinking. So it really is a many-pronged approach. There isn't just one way to build self-love. I have Mm -hmm. to act it. I have to think it. I have to, you know, say the words, walk the walk, talk the talk. So I think it's a spiritual experience as well Mm -hmm. as an emotional and a mental experience. As you're talking about all this, I mean, obviously, I totally agree. And that's what I try to do in my life and, and help my clients work for. But I feel like for most of the people who I see in early recovery anyway, Uh society is set up pretty much for the exact opposite. Absolutely. I think society is set up for people to work harder and to make more money. And we are judged on how we look instead of the person we are. It's like, are we human beings or human doers? And I think I grew up as a human doer. Hard work and a lot of work and busyness were rewarded in my family and Mm -hmm. in my career. And so that shift, society is going to tell us one thing, but the shift again has to be, am I willing to do things differently and live with the discomfort and even live with other people's negative opinions about what I'm doing? People question me. My father would say, how can you give Mm. up this well-paying job to go do social work? And social work has a a very broad spectrum of opportunities, which is is lovely about it. And you don't have to not make a decent, I can make a decent living, right? Right. So I feel very fortunate, but you don't get the stock options. You don't get paid days off. You don't, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of things we don't get, which is fine. I I take that trade off any day. Right. And I think when you when you said that sitting with the discomfort of other people's judgment, Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of the people that I work with, that's really one of the hardest things. How is there a way that you kind of developed a little bit of a, a thicker skin around that? Well, one of the things I used to do was I would listen to a lot of they are now CDs or on DVDs, but we used to For listen kids to listening, it's, yeah, those are, those are old things that, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to describe a tape to someone who doesn't know what it is. Right. It's just, yeah, a tape. They, we call them cassette <laughs> tapes. And so Wayne Dyer mm. is one of my favorite healers. And he has since passed away in the last five years, but he oh, did talked he? about, he did, he did, sadly. He mm. talked about really having to give up on the good opinion of other people. Mm-hmm. And so I need repetition. I learn yeah. through repetition. And so I would listen to him. I would write about it. I would add that spiritual component and maybe meditate or pray about it. I talk mm-hmm. to people about it. And I try and little by little just, oh my gosh, let me practice that thing. That person's giving me this opinion And I have to let go of the good opinion of others. So it became my mantra. And whatever you put your attention to, I think you can really make changes. And I think it's very hard to change our thinking. 
But I really Mm -hmm. think that it's powerful, really powerful. And you said the word practice. And I think that's been the revolution in my own life is recognizing that every single thing is a practice. I saw Noah Levine speak this weekend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he everything that he said, it's stuff that I've heard before. But like you said, you need repetition and like sometimes just a different way of somebody saying it. And he was talking about impermanence and everything is impermanent, even spiritual insight and even mental health growth. So we constantly have to be practicing these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I work with people, one of the things I don't know if they know about me is that I work very hard at practicing what I preach. So good self-care, right? Yes. I don't think that as a therapist, I could sit with people and do what I do and be useful unless I'm taking care of myself. So the repetition of every day doing a quiet time, the repetition of every Mm -hmm. day doing a gratitude list, Mm. doing things physically like working out, eating well, trying to get a good night's sleep. Sometimes I'm Mm -hmm. better at that than others. Those are things that they're every day. I always say it's like rinse and repeat. You do it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And if people would do these basic things core self-care things every day, their lives would be better, even if they just did that. Right. And there's, I don't know where the idea comes from that our baseline is supposed to be happiness. But I think that's what a lot of, at least the people that I work with and even, you know, friends I've had over the years, oh, like I'm just supposed to be happy. And if Mm -hmm. I'm not happy, then that's, there's something wrong, Mm -hmm. but that's not true. Yeah. The way I look at happiness is that I want to know how each person that I work with defines happiness. So my idea of happiness used to be being the center of a party, the center of attention, Mm. you know, those looking good things I talked about earlier. My definition of happiness has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with someone and they say, you know, I just want to be happy, great. Let's talk about what that looks like for you. And it might be different from how I define it. And over time in the work we do, it may change just like it did for me. I really can't imagine you wanting to be the center of attention. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, I think you're right. And I think one of the things that I've learned about myself is that I used to think of myself as an extrovert. And I grew Hmm. up in a home where there were a lot of extroverts. Not everyone was, but I had a sister, especially. I have a sister. She's very extroverted, and she's so good at it. And she Hmm. is bigger than life, and she has many friends, and she does fantastic work for a lot of people. And I used to try and keep up with her. And Mm. one of the lessons, the beautiful lessons, and I always say I'm a slow learner, I have just (laughs) come to realize in the last four or five years, I'm not really an extrovert. I have been pretending all my life and I'd go to parties and be miserable and I'd be with my sister or I'd compare myself to what I was doing to what she was doing. And I I always fell short. Hmm. And now I realize when I go to a party and she's the center, it's like, oh, good. I can be happy for her. She's doing what she wants to do. And I'm being true to myself and being who I am. I'm so glad that you said that you've just realized that because sometimes You know, I'm 39 now, so going on 40, and I feel like that's a good enough time to have figured oneself out. And sometimes when I have a new realization, I'm like beating myself up for not having figured that out before. But 
it's a process again and a practice and there's always new information we can find out about ourselves. So that's that's so interesting that you shared that. Yeah. And what I have found and, and you know, I used to beat myself up for why didn't I get this sooner? Why didn't I start my healing process sooner? Mm-hmm. But what I've realized is that timing is divine. And that has become one of my mantras that I live by. So Mm -hmm. I became a parent later in life. I got married later. I have learned things, again, on that slow route. And and that's just my process. And I need to love and respect that that's my process. There are people who have done their healing work. And they have, like, if we're on a highway, they have passed me by on the on that healing highway <laughs> in a much shorter time. <laughs> healing highway. That's going to be the it. title for this episode. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So, and it's a long highway. Mine is a very long highway, but I also think that that's why I'm here, you know, to learn my lessons that I need to learn. And I really think that's true for most of us, that we have lessons to learn. Mm. And I know some people don't see it that way, but I think this whole life is about being on that highway. Yeah. And I, you know, when you said some people don't see it that way, I feel like, I guess I want to be careful on how I say this because I, I believe that there is a neurochemical component to depression. But I also mm-hmm. think that there's a huge part of depression that really is about our views on the world. And I know for me, a lot of my anxiety shifted when I was able to change what I believed in. Yes, absolutely. I'm lucky that I grew up in a house. I mean, we had lots of issues, but one of the things was that my mother had a lot of energy and she was out there in the world. So she and my sister have a lot in common. (laughs) And as such, I feel like the energy was always optimistic Mm -hmm. and that, that we could get up and dust ourselves off and we could keep going. And, you know, some people are raised in families where they get hurt and nobody cares mm-hmm. and they're told to just get up and keep going. Mm-hmm. And that can, you know, work both ways, both to encourage you to be motivated and get up and go. But it can also lead to, I think, feeling like nobody cares and, and right. you know, kind of add to depression. So I feel like the energy and the environment you grow up with can be a part of that. And also, right. you know, your resilience. How resilient are you? And I think your thoughts have a lot to do with that. Yeah. Well, let's go down the healing highway, if you will. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the word healer and how it applies to your work. Wow. You know, I have had an issue with calling myself a healer. I want to believe that I help people in their healing and I'm an assistant in other people's healing, but I don't heal others. I feel like the healing work that I've done for myself allows me to be a vessel and allows me to be kind of that vessel for what the client needs, the person sitting in front of me needs, hopefully through my education and the continued training and who I am. Hopefully that helps people heal. And in terms of healer, I want to say that I'm a healer. I guess I'm just Still working towards that, being able to call myself a healer. I think part of that just is I used to pray to be humble. Mm. I used to really want to be understated. Hmm. And I think that's part of it. When I think of myself as a healer, I think I maybe I think there's more expectation on me. I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. 
But I would love to think of myself that way. I'm just not sure I'm there yet. Yeah, the interviews that I've done thus far, and I've probably done about 10, and most people answer the way that you answer. And there's kind of this sheepish, like, okay, like, kind of, I'd love to step into that. And it's almost, I can call you a healer, but you Mm. won't call yourself a healer. But there was one one woman who I did interview who was able to be like, yeah, I'm a healer. And and she echoed the same sentiment that everyone, Mm because everyone is like, I'm a vessel, you know, I'm a conduit, I'm, Mm -hmm. I am these things. But she was like, yeah, I'm a healer because I'm part of this journey for people. And I have done a lot of healing work on myself. And I'm wondering, you know, what you said makes me think that certainly religious upbringing can play a part in how we view ourselves that way. I'm also thinking about being socialized as women and not necessarily being taught to step into our power. I'm, I'm curious if any of that resonates with you. I think it's probably about stepping into my own power. I think the way I was raised religiously was much more spiritual than religious. And that's kind of where I lean now. It's totally where I lean now on the spiritual side. I think this part about owning my own empowerment is really part of the lesson I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. I think I used to feel I was powerful when I was in business because I could make decisions and I led people and managed people. And so, again, it was the outside, the environment that was helping me to feel that empowerment rather than feeling it on the inside. And I also wonder, too, in the business world, things are much more black and white, right? Mm -hmm. There's a right or wrong answer for most questions. And in the work that we do now, there's rarely a right or wrong answer. Everything is on a spectrum. And so I, I wonder, too, if that sense of because... You know, we talk a lot in our field of addiction about powerlessness, and I think the irony of powerlessness when we truly lean into that is we feel more empowered when we step into powerlessness, groundlessness, that idea that things are always changing rather than I have to have the right answer. And then when I lose it, I'm fucked. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think working with addictions and doing my own healing work on my codependency has really been a wonderful spiritual journey for me and has helped me to take that road towards empowering myself. And I obviously still have work to do, which, you know, I'm happy to say that and to be able to admit that my work's not done. My work is never going to be done. I just Mm -hmm. hope I get to where I'm supposed to get to, you know, Mm -hmm. before, before I'm not able to learn anymore. So right. I think I'm going to be a very old person because I have a lot to learn. So I'll tell you a funny story about mm-hmm. my dad. So he, well, he always used to say, and he's dead folks, just so you know, mm-hmm. I'm allowed to tell this story and it's totally fine. We're cool. But he always used to say, you know, I'd be like, how are you, dad? And he's like, well, any day above ground is a good day. And then yeah. he died. And mm. um <laughs> And I I do always say that with laughter because that's the way like he would be making this joke if he were alive. Trust me. So when my dad died, I sought out some spiritual connection because I it happened really suddenly. He and I didn't have a good relationship. And I don't know. I just felt called to learn more things about the afterlife. And my therapist is a shaman. And so I asked Mm. her if she knew of any mediums. And she sent me to this 
woman who, I don't think she was a medium. I think she was just clairvoyant, which I couldn't exactly tell you the difference between them. But I I think a medium is someone who actually channels where a clairvoyant can just see things. So I went to this clairvoyant. She was super eccentric. Like she saw people out of her apartment and it just smelled like cigarettes. And she smoked the whole time we were together. (laughs) And... As soon as we sat down and and she had me in a chair next to her and she put her hand on my hand and that's kind of how she connected our energies and would see things. And right away, she's like, I see a man with a mustache. I'm like, that's my dad. Probably that's that's when he thinks he looks his best. And it was probably about six months after he died. And she said... He's in a place where, or no, first thing she said was he lived his life with a lot of fear. And on the outside, I always thought my dad was an angry person. But now that I know what I know about people's internal worlds, anger is certainly an expression of fear. And she said he lived his whole life in fear and Mm -hmm. he didn't learn any of the lessons that he was supposed to learn in this lifetime. So he is in this space before he gets to you know, just chill out in the afterlife. He's in this space where he's now getting educated on everything that he didn't learn. And I was like, like spiritual kindergarten? She's like, exactly. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So if you don't learn any lesson, which obviously you've learned a lot, but if you don't learn all of them, you can have spiritual kindergarten too, says this clairvoyant. I'm into it. I'm into it too. And I, I feel like whatever grade I'm in, I'm putting the work in and that's all we can ask of ourselves and our clients is Mm -hmm. do the footwork and let go of the outcome. Let go of where this takes you, you know, focusing on the process or focusing on the outcome. Enjoy the journey. I think there's so much truth to that. Right. You know, I think we can say these these phrases and it can sound a little disconnected or just like, oh, just be optimistic. Mm -hmm. But I I always remind people that we want to hold two things at the same time. We want to hold that it's about the journey, not the destination. But sometimes the journey sucks and there's a lot of pain in there. And we get to acknowledge both of those things at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the important part is the important piece is, am I moving in the direction that I think is for my highest good. Right, right. Brene Brown says how we figure out whether we're numbing or taking care of ourselves. Is this, is it moving me towards my goals or away from them? Absolutely. I have a corner in my office that I always point to with my clients and I say, uh, if your goals are over in this corner, like to my right, Mm -hmm. why do you keep doing things that are over going towards my left? You know, it doesn't make sense if what you really want is over here. Why do we keep making choices Mm -hmm. that take us away from what we really, really want? Mm -hmm. One of the things I I love to do is I work with people who are trying to get into relationships. Mm. And so, of course, it's a long process because we need to understand their relationship history and, and how they got there and where they are today. But moving forward with them. It's so interesting to talk to people and to understand that hanging on to that past or hanging on to the path that they have the most comfort with, they hang on to it because it's familiar. It's what they know. And change, we were talking about that earlier, change is difficult. Yeah. And for me, part of my comfort in change comes from the spiritual foundation that Mm -hmm. I've worked really hard on and that I really, you know, again, invite my clients 
to to take that path. And if they're not willing, we don't go there. So Right. And sometimes it's not a good fit, right? Like I I love to work with spirituality as well. And, you know, if people are super intellectualized and not interested in developing a spirituality, I might not be the therapist for you. And that's totally okay. That's absolutely right. And it's not always appropriate if we're talking about someone who's new into therapy where I don't go there for a long time. I mean, everything to me is about building that relationship with the client and letting them get to know me and me them so that we have that safety and trust. So if over time it seems appropriate, I will introduce that. Right. And I just kind of wanted to note when you talked about working with people trying to get in relationships, Mm -hmm. I think one of the coolest things that I've gotten to witness as a therapist is watching somebody fall in love. Oh, it's amazing. Right. And amazing. And and watching them fall in love in an authentic way for the Mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got a client right now that I can just just think about the experience of having a healthy relationship is so foreign and it's like so cool. (laughs) It's so cool to watch it. My favorite thing they say when they get there is it's so easy. It's not complicated. Right. Like, Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I remember thinking that when I met my husband, too, because I had always wanted to get married. And then when I met him, like because I had tried and like nobody Mm -hmm. wanted to marry me, thank God. And then I met my husband and I was like, wait, I I think I think this is it. But like I didn't trust myself. Right, right, right. (laughs) Because it was too easy. And one of the reasons that I like working with people and helping them through relationships is because it took me so long to find the right partner for myself. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I understand what it's like to be with someone who's not right for me, but stay with them anyways, and to not listen to my gut and to really ignore the red flags that are presented within the first three to six months of being with somebody. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I get that process and I just want to share some of my experiences with people. So, you know, we love to help people not make the same mistakes we make, but that's Mm -hmm. not always possible, obviously, but at least we can understand when they do and help them to better understand. Right. Because there are other slow learners out there, right? Yes. 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 <laughs> slow Absolutely. learner on the healing highway. That's there you it. Go. And it's, you know, it's slow and steady. That's that's my mantra, slow and steady. Absolutely. So. Well, kind of back on the healing highway, sure. what do you think about the term wounded healer? Mm. You know, I think in some ways, It's so appropriate because if I'm thinking of the healers in my life, and if I think of myself as a healer, which I'm, I'm going to keep trying to keep that (laughs) lean into it, lean into it, leaning into it. Yeah, I really believe that unless you have experienced your own pain, Mm -hmm. your own challenges, that you don't come to the table with as much empathy, with as much ability to connect with clients. Mm -hmm. And I believe through my own wounds, I used to, I'm going to just change this for a second. I used to think of my life as a life of loss. I would have a written list and I could just tell anybody who was willing to listen about all the things that I had to endure and go through and endure. I'm, I'm exaggerating now, but right. you know, it was my life as a movie. 
it was up on the mm. big screen and I wanted everybody to see it and I wanted everybody to feel sorry for me or to give me attention, whatever I was looking mm. for at the time. And through my healing, I have transformed, gratefully transformed my life into a life of love. Mm. And I think that that is the thing I'm most grateful for. And I think gratitude, we haven't really talked about gratitude, but I think gratitude yeah. is a huge part of this whole healing process. To be able to change the way that I tell my story, the, the way that I look at my story now is probably the greatest gift that I've been given through this whole process. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things we learn about you know, as a tool for therapy is is reframe. And I think that practicing gratitude is practicing reframing. I was told about the gift of gratitude very early in my healing. And I started to make gratitude lists. And it was for very basic things. Mm -hmm. You know, food, clothing, shelter. That's about as far as I got. Wow. And then, it, and then it expanded and expanded. And one of the things I was told to do was to do it every day. And I was writing the same things over and over again every day. And I think hmm. I have at least 20 years of pages of gratitude. Oh, what? And, you keep them all? Well, Aww. I keep them in my journal. Aww. So when I'm journaling, I also write a gratitude list. And it's the same gratitude list almost every day. And then when something new pops up hmm. or into my life or I see something for the like I've seen it only for the first time, a tree or something, I might add that. But my belief is that as I'm grateful, like the veil keeps lifting and I keep learning mm. more about myself and about how I want to experience the world. Mm hmm. That's awesome. So, you know, tying that back into the wounded healer, it's I hear you saying, too, in a roundabout way, you're grateful for your wounds. You're grateful for the difficult experiences you've had. I absolutely am grateful. I would not have been able, I don't think I would have been able to learn the lessons mm -hmm. that I have learned and to become the person that I am. And mm -hmm. I think the integrity and the values and principles I have come from dealing with those wounds. And I think our wounds are there to guide us. Obviously, if we keep walking in the same hole, we're going to keep hurting ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I'm learning, there's a wonderful saying, you know, pick a different road so I don't have to right. keep visiting that hole every time. Right. And I think, you know, the wounds are a reminder, though. And so sometimes we have to keep making the same mistake over and over again and going into that hole and feeling that pain mm -hmm. that that initial wound provides the foundation for. But eventually, if you do your work long enough, you pick a different road. Right. Right. And then sometimes you find a different wound that you didn't know was there. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do find that everything I do, it really does come back to the same. For me, it's like attachment stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like attachment to, to both my parents. I, I had like kind of this resistant attachment, I guess, more avoidant attachment with my mom and this more anxious attachment with my dad. And that keeps coming back in relationships over and over and over again in, in different ways. And I found that the healing journey makes now with all the work I've done, the wounds are more subtle and it's not quite as like this visceral pain that used yes. to grip me when that would come up. Yes. You find that as well? 
I do find that as well. And I, it can happen with friendships. It can happen with colleagues. Yes. It can happen with clients sometimes, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. when we're in session or when I'm in session with a client. And so being aware is so important. But as my wounds pop up, paying attention to them and letting them speak to me, giving them airtime and then doing what I need to do to comfort myself and take care of it so it doesn't keep coming up. A question that just came up for me, because the other day, one of my friends, I was talking about something that I didn't find was particularly vulnerable for me, but apparently she thought it was really vulnerable. And she called me courageous. And it's hard for me to apply that term to myself because I can I can always negate it and figure out why that's not true. But what you're talking about, it really is courage because to look at oneself I think is the most courageous act that we can undertake. And I almost, I feel like there's this huge schism right now where we're being called to wake the fuck up. And for those of us who are awake, we are in pain and we are struggling and we are kind of trying to claw our way out. And then I see this kind of, this uptick in the level of denial in a lot of people in my life. And I I guess I'm just curious for you, would you call it courage for yourself? And if so, how do you cultivate the courage to stay awake? Well, I, for me, it's become a way of life. Staying awake is really, really important to me. I know that I can put things aside and I consciously put some things aside that are going on in the world today so that I can stay focused on my work and my work on myself, but also with my clients. I mean, Mm -hmm. I wish I could heal the whole world. I I wish I could get out there and help everybody. That's not what I've been called to do. My work is to help people heal one at a time. If I do group, it's eight at a time. But my work is on a smaller scale. And if I get caught up in what's going on outside of me, but really outside politically or anywhere in the world, then I cannot be fully available to the people I work with. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to be working with people, I feel I owe it to them to be in that room and fully and wholly in the room and not exhausted because I've been up all night reading newspapers or reading, shouldn't say newspapers, I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) What's a newspaper? Exactly. I'm teaching people a lot today, but to stay off of social media, I can get it as involved as I want to get when I am able and when I have the energy for it, but not at the expense of the work that I feel I'm being called to do with my clients. And so I look at things going on politically right now, and I try and put white light around those people that I think Mm -hmm. are harming us or I pray for them, or I try and find something good about what they are doing. It's getting harder and harder for me to do it truthfully. Right. But I am maintaining the gratitude for being in this country, for being in this community that we live in. And I'm also just inviting the universe. If I am being called to do something else, I'm, I'm there and I'm open and receptive to it. But I am not going to let it get in the way of what I I really feel like I need to be doing right now. Right. 
I'm just going to say this because if it's coming to my mind, I imagine it may come to other people who might be listening. And the criticism of that stance I keep hearing from, you know, I've got I've got a lot of liberal friends who are like, you know, you're not doing enough. And no one's calling me out specifically, but good for you with your white privilege that you can ignore these things. And what I heard you saying is it's not that you're ignoring it. It's that you know that you can do help meeting one person at a time. And if somebody said, hey, Helen, we got this, you know, I don't I don't know what it is. But if, but if somebody said, hey, we got this thing and I know you can join us, that you would take up arms and, and fight that fight. Um, and it's, I guess, too, just saying, yeah, we have white privilege. And I can recognize that. And I can tell you that for me, it's not very comfortable. You know, what I talked about earlier, being on that conference call, you know, that conference call was a lot about working with addiction and underserved populations. And that's not what I do on the day to day. And that's not what I was taught to do as a social worker, right? They don't talk to you about going into private practice as a social worker, but pain is pain. And there is no way that you or I as individuals can eradicate what everyone is is suffering with. And as long as we I guess, have reverence for that and make space for that when we can, I think that's the best we can do. I agree. And I think that someone has got to support the people that do have the skills and the talent to be on the front lines. So I work with people who are out there and they're actively doing things to protest or to Mm -hmm. write letters or to campaign. And so that is fantastic. That is what they're here to do. Mm -hmm. And they need help in their own lives to be able to continue to do it. And that's where Mm -hmm. I come in. Right. And so I'm like behind the scenes, behind the camera, instead of being out there. And I feel like that's one way that I participate. I also think that getting like-minded people to be sending prayers and energy mm-hmm. for peace and for love and for good solid decisions to be made and for ethics and for good boundaries and mm-hmm. for hu- humane treatment that that is something I can do from mm-hmm. where I sit and mm-hmm. so I think for each of us we have to figure out our own way of doing it and I think it's okay if some people are public about it. And I appreciate those people that are public about it. And I also need to have appreciation for some people like myself who are doing it behind the scenes. Right. I just can't keep my head buried in the sand, which I think for myself was an issue. Yeah. Again, that balance. Absolutely. Not everybody can go and burn themselves out and then there's nobody to help the helpers. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want to be mindful of our time because I'm okay. imagining you have a four o'clock appointment. Uh, so is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to share today before we wrap up? I guess my hope would be that for all of us, individually and collectively, that we would start to treat ourselves and therefore other people in a more compassionate, kind and loving way Mm -hmm. that the true change that's going to come about in this world, it really is one person at a time. And so if we can each take it upon ourselves to get the help we need 
Mm -hmm. To be the kind of parent we were really meant to be, if we can be honest with ourselves and the kind of human beings we are and who we want to be, that we all have the ability to contribute to make this world a better place. And Mm -hmm. we all have the right to be happy however we define it. And so I just hope people take that step and whatever their healing highway looks like, I hope they get on it and that they find what they're looking for. I really wish that I had the rights to life as a highway because I would totally <laughs> I would totally <laughs> put life as a highway in that spot. But like not to not to make it cheesy. That's that was what was going on in my head. But I yeah, you're right. Like, I think there's a call to action right now to to heal ourselves and like I said, I, I see this schism with people who are going on the healing highway and people who are opting out. And it hurts to watch when people opt out. Yeah. And don't give up. This is right. hard. No one said it was going to be easy. But, you know, at some point you run out of options and people get into their healing work because they're mostly because we're motivated by pain. Right. And it's just how much pain do you need to be in before you're going to do something about it? Right. Well, Helen, thank you so much. I am so appreciative of this because I know this was out of your comfort zone. Well, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us on Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thanks so much to Helen King. It's funny, when I was talking to Helen before and said, hey, where should I send people to find more information about you? Because you don't have a website. You don't have a Psychology Today profile. She's like, well, you can Google me. So if you want to find more information about Helen, you can Google her, Helen King from Chicago. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, my friend Liam O'Donnell for the rad album art, Ben Mueller for the theme music. For more information on Helen King, again, just Google away. For more information about conversations with a wounded healer, you can visit my website at bit.ly slash wounded healer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.